0: Many of us didn't grow up observing the church calendar, but since the fourth century, the church has ordered time according to the significant moments in the life of Jesus and the early church. This calendar begins with the celebration of Advent, a period of four weeks leading up to Christmas, when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the Son of God, and we anticipate his second coming. In between these important advents, we wait in the tension. We pray for deliverance, we cry out against injustice, we long for the culmination of redemption and the reign of King Jesus. The texts that are used for these weeks are not your typical Christmas passages. They are prophetic, apocalyptic, and filled with warning and hope. Each one leads us to consider Christmas for what it truly is. As the prophet Isaiah writes, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Enjoy the episode.
1: How are you guys? This is nice. We're used to being over at Asbury that seats like 9,000 people and <laughs> here we are with just a couple of seats uh, sporadically available. Brandon said as he was coming in, he said, um, this is where we're having Christmas Eve? I said, yeah. He's like, well, I guess we'll be here early that night. So <laughs> I encourage you guys to be early and do bring your family. We'll uh, stand along the walls if we have to, but it's usually a, a good night of being together and singing some songs. It is a short service. Um, in the past, it has been no longer than 45 minutes, um, and if I'm up here talking, you guys can feel free to throw things at me to hurry that project along. I know that when I was a kid, our routine was always to open a present before we would go to church together, and then we would go to church together, and then we would open more presents at home. So I like was just chomping at the bit for whoever had the microphone to stop talking immediately. I've also realized this about myself. I had this momentary thought of maybe I should like, put on a Christmas sweater and invite the kids to come sit around at my feet and I could like tell them a story and then I thought, no, that probably wouldn't be good for any of the people, myself included, so we probably won't do that, but maybe, you never know. I have fun with Abe during story time, who knows. So this is Advent Week 2. Last week, we were looking at a text in the book of Isaiah, and just to bring you guys up to speed, the way that we do Advent here at the Restoration Project is we look at the lectionary. The lectionary is a selection of four different passages in the Bible. You have an Old Testament reading. You have some sort of poetic reading, usually a psalm. You have a New Testament reading, and then you have a gospel reading, Uh, so you have two New Testament readings, maybe a third if they decide to take a, their poetry into the New Testament. Then you have an Old Testament reading. And these passages that, that we've been looking at over Advent and that we're going to look at over Advent, they're not really Christmassy. I've gone back over the tapes. and I've listened to myself say that for the last four years now. These are not Christmas-inspired passages, although I think that they're appropriate for us as we think about where we are, what we're doing with our lives, um, what's going on in our country, to be able to think through uh, this season of Advent, a season that is looking back to the birth of Jesus and looking forward to the return of Jesus and sitting in the midst of this time of, of waiting the anticipation and expectation, but also in the midst of the tension. Scholars would call that the already and the not yet. We are already recipients and benefactors of what Jesus has done, but we are not yet there. There's problems in our lives and there's problems in the world. And we feel that tension at times. And sometimes these passages in the Advent lectionary cycle, they bring this to bear for us. Last week, we were looking at um, a selection from the book of Isaiah. And we spent a good number of weeks in our church history looking at Isaiah 40 through 55. So for some of you, this was review. In fact, my wife said to me on Monday or Tuesday as we were going over the the teaching from last week, she said, you know, I was really surprised how much I remembered from the series in Isaiah that was like two or three years ago, to which I said, yes, perfect. But what we have in the book of Isaiah is really three different specific contexts that are embedded within one biblical book. It goes through what is known as the pre-exilic period, the exilic period, and then it moves into the post-exilic period. And for most Christians, nobody really cares about exile. Nobody really talks about the exile of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament and how monumental that was for these people. If you look at the Old Testament, very early on, they are promised the land. They are promised this this promised land where they would go and God would be with them and they establish their temple there and they have this, uh, the presence of God is there with them in this place. And through a, a series of events, namely their own sin and recalcitrance, they are removed from the land. Israel is removed from the land in the eighth century and then Judah is removed from their land in the sixth century. And these events are monumental moments in Israel's history. The first 39 chapters in the book of Isaiah focus on this pre-exilic period where you have the eighth century prophet, Isaiah Ben-Amos, say Isaiah Ben-Amos. And he's talking about these things are going to come for you. They're going to happen unless you repent. There's this, uh, this prophetic message of, of call and repentance that Isaiah is trying to get these people to observe, to, remo- to remove themselves from their sin and to go into a different direction. But that doesn't happen. And they, they face exile, And this is an important moment in Israel's history. And this happens in 586 BC. And you can see that there's a big gap of time between Isaiah one through 39 and and the the focus of the text there. And when exile happens in 586, there's a period of 130 or so odd years in between these moments. And when Judah is removed from the land and the Babylonians come and they take them away from their people, from their homes, from their temple, from their God, from from everything that they've known and, and loved there's this moment where they begin to ask the question of, who are we? What are we doing? Does God even care about us anymore? And we have some of the most pathos-laden poetry that you could ever imagine in the Old Testament as it is picking up on this theme of exile, specifically as we look at the book of Lamentations. It's focused on this moment of destruction where the Babylonians have come and ravaged the temple and have removed the people from the land. And we hear these texts like this, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people, how like a widow is she who once was great among the nations, she who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. They're metaphorically talking about Jerusalem and what she has now become in light of this destruction that has happened. Bitterly, she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. The text continues in verse nine. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands. This term of Zion refers to Jerusalem and and God's rule in this city. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. And then finally in verse 21, people have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. Jerusalem is metaphorically speaking of herself. There is no one to comfort her in her affliction. So Isaiah 1 through 39, it leads up to this moment of destruction. And then we have these passages in Isaiah 40 through 55 that really seem to focus in on the aftermath of what has happened. But what I want you to see is this this passage of time in between Isaiah 39, which actually I have open here. um, It was leading up to this. It says, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, this is in 701 BC or somewhere in that time. Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored Up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Everything that these people know and every bit of familiarity that they have has been taken from them. And then as we turn from Isaiah 39 and we move into Isaiah 40, there's a period of about 150, maybe even 160 years of silence. And in the background, we have the, this pathos-laden poetry of lamentations that says, there was no one to comfort me. There was no comfort in what we have experienced. And I don't know how to make this real for you because the only time that we um, reflect, and I I don't think this is a negative, the only time that we really reflect or we understand our suffering is when it is individualized. There's not a lot of communal suffering, perhaps, that takes place. Perhaps we could go back to 9-11 and think that was maybe the last time in our country's history, at least, when we have communally lamented together something that was taking place. But even that is a bit distinct from what's happening here in the text, but these people collectively together are saying there is no comfort and then there is silence. We don't see that in the book of Isaiah because there's not much that happens in between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40. In fact, you just turn the page over and you keep reading. But here, you have to understand what's, what's happening in the, in the culture and in the moment is taking place. And Isaiah 40 shows up in the midst of this disaster looking back onto what has happened, thinking about perhaps in their experience the fact that there is no comfort among God's people. But Isaiah 40 begins with a note of comfort. If any of you have ever seen Handel's Messiah or any sort of production of that, perhaps you're wanting to hum along, comfort, comfort ye my people, comfort. No? You should YouTube that. It's nice. It'll be a little bit better than what I just did, but, you know, tomato, tomato. So Isaiah 40 begins with this note of comfort. I want to read to you our lectionary passage for this week, the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 40. And understand the background and the context. This is God speaking into the silence. This is God declaring comfort for his people in a situation where they have felt no comfort. They have felt abandoned. They don't know if God cares about them anymore. And this is the declarative message that comes from on high. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever." You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The word of God for the people of God. God. It begins with this note. Of comfort. Now, this might be a familiar passage to some of you. This is probably one of the most notable passages in the entire book of, of Isaiah. But in order to understand this, I think that we have to interpret the culture. I was reading this really good book this past week, and sometimes my studies kind of dovetail accidentally. And this is one of those moments. I was reading this book on Genesis 1 and understanding the cultural context in which this passage of scripture was written. But the author says, when we read a text written in another language, obviously he's referring to the Old Testament text that's written primarily, In Hebrew, but we do have a few passages in uh, Aramaic, not any of the ones that we're looking at tonight. When we read a text written in another language and addressed to another culture, we must translate the culture as well as the language if we hope to understand the text fully. Sometimes we think that our job is over when we get a good English equivalent from the Hebrew or the Aramaic or the Greek text. But what we sometimes fail to recognize is the fact that we are reading really old pieces of scripture, that have this culture embedded within them, these things that are happening that we are very much divorced from in our daily goings-ons, the goings-on of going to Rise Up or Main Roots, figuring out if we're going to get a pumpkin spice latte or a flat white or a double shot espresso or what have you, like I'm kind of putting myself in a corner here, I do a lot of my work in a coffee shop, so excuse me, um, Usually, it's not that big of a decision. We already have those things mapped out. But in order to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the culture as well as the words on the page. Now, doesn't that look fancy? (laughs) Nachamu, nachamu ami, yomer eloheichem. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, what's interesting about this in English, it doesn't necessarily come through that this is a a divine command, a plural to the people. And the only way that you can really reckon this in English is by saying the colloquial term, y'all. Because you can be singular or plural. And it's funny to see some of these eloquent Hebrew instructors that have lobbied for bringing back the term, y'all, so that we know if it's a plural or not, but the text could be translated. Not really. I mean, this would be a, a worthless translation of the Bible that no one would buy. Although back in the day, there was a text called, um, oh gosh, the something about, there was some colloquial English text that was like the message, but back in the 1900s, I don't know. it. Okay. I'm I think only Josh Revel knows what I'm talking about. Okay, This is like, hey, y'all comfort. Y'all need to go comfort my people. This is God giving a command to a group of people to go give comfort to those who have no comfort. In other words, God is commanding the people, go do this. This is an imperative that he is giving to people. Now this is interesting. Uh, The first thing that we need to note, though, is this is a message of comfort in the midst of no comfort. Remember those texts from Lamentations that are roughly contemporaneous with what we're looking at in the book of Isaiah. There was no one to comfort her, no one to comfort her. There was no one to comfort Jerusalem because of what she has experienced, because of what she has felt in this destruction from the Babylonians. This, however, is a message of comfort that shows up in the midst of the silence where God says, I have a word that needs to be spoken right here and right now For these people who feel ostracized and oppressed and marginalized, and I'm speaking comfort, and I'm speaking to you guys to go and do it, which raises the very interesting question, to whom is God speaking? Now, I've been wrestling with this for a little bit of time here because this is something that might be deemed scary slash controversial, slash file this away in. I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to do with this sort of stuff. So visitors, welcome. The rest of you... This is what we have been working for for a long time, to be able to engage with this sort of stuff in the Bible and to make sense of it. Remember, we're not just trying to exegete the words on the page, we're also trying to exegete the culture in which this text was written. And this is our question, to whom is God speaking? Walter Brueggemann says, it's widely accepted by scholars that the plural of address is spoken to members of the divine council, the government of Yahweh in heaven that is peopled by angels, and messengers, so far so good. Another scholar, this is Paul Hanson, he says, what we find in Isaiah 40 is a view of the divine realm that was widespread in the ancient Near East in biblical times, and this is exactly how people, in my opinion, should be reading the Bible, set within its context so that we can understand what is going on. It portrays the deliberations of an assembly of the gods that was believed to order and govern the universe. So far, so good? No, probably not, this is, this is crazy stuff here. But what we see is a picture of this divine council and God at the head of the boardroom saying, comfort my people, who's ready, who's in, who's gonna go? And around the table are angels and messengers and other rival gods, but God is in control of what's happening. This is the message that we seem to see in the book of Isaiah, specifically in chapter 40. I'm gonna give you some text where this comes to, to bear uh, in the classic story of Job. We hear Job, he is righteous, and um, there's this testing that happens in the first chapter or so of the book that sets the entire story of Job's suffering and Job's uh, pain and, and suffering. And the way that this story is set up in the Old Testament, in chapter one, it says, one day the divine beings, the NIV translates this as angels, literally in the Hebrew, it's the sons of God, which shows up throughout the Old Testament. Quite often, the English translators do different things with it. On the, uh, one day the divine beings came to present themselves before the Lord and the adversary. In the NIV, it would be translated Satan, but literally in the Hebrew, it's the Satan. Say the Satan. This is not a proper name in the Old Testament. This is a common noun as it shows up in this passage. And again, the idea is that as God sits at the head of the boardroom, there are different people around the the table and the Satan, the adversary is one that has some plan up his sleeve. In Psalm 82, we see other sorts of passages that seem to assume these other characters. God takes his stand in the divine council at that boardroom table. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly by granting favor to the wicked? Give justice to the lowly and the orphan. Maintain the right of the poor and the destitute. Rescue the lowly and the needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. In this passage, God is ticked because of the mismanagement of the people around the table specifically how they have led kings and other people here to rule and to have a lack of justice for these folks. In Psalm 89, God is respected in the council of the holy ones. God is awesome and revered more than all those around him. Who is like you, Lord God of heavenly forces? Mighty Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. All throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the poetic text, we have these comparisons. Who is like you? God. And at times there is no um, downplaying of these other figures. The point is to exalt God above everyone else in the text. And now this is one of the strangest passages in the Old Testament, in my opinion, but this is 1 Kings 22. Then Micaiah said, now Micaiah has been enlisted to prophesy, but the king does not want Micaiah to prophesy because they always know how Micaiah's prophecy is bad news. He's kind of like the Debbie Downer of the bunch. But here in this passage, Micaiah says, listen now to the Lord's word. I saw the Lord enthroned with all the heavenly forces, all of the hosts of heaven stationed beside him. At his right and his left, the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab, the king, so that he attacks Ramoth Gilead and dies there? There were many suggestions until one particular spirit approached the Lord and said, I'll do it. I'll persuade him. And now this text only makes sense if you have this idea of the heavenly boardroom in mind where God is sitting at the head of the table saying, who's gonna go do this? And then a spirit says, I'm gonna go do this. The text does get weirder as it it continues. How, the Lord asks, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets, he said. The Lord agreed, you will succeed in persuading him, go ahead, so now since the Lord has placed a lying spirit in the mouths of every one of these prophets of yours, it is the Lord who has pronounced disaster against you. This is all very weird, correct? This is stuff that we don't usually talk about in church, correct? This is the moment when I'm up here and I have a microphone and I'm thinking, there might be wisdom in that. (laughs) But in order to understand Isaiah 40, I think that we have to understand the culture of what's taking place, where God is saying, comfort, comfort my people. And he's giving this divine command to people around the table in the heavenly boardroom, so to speak. This is the way that this text makes sense for us but it's still confusing and we have to understand what's going on in order uh, for this passage to make sense particularly with how it breaks down and for us to to get a hold of that we're going to need to interpret the culture. Now what I've done for you here is I've put the potential speakers in certain colors throughout this text. So in Isaiah 40 this is God speaking comfort comfort my people says your God, speak tenderly. Literally the word there is speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now imagine this being spoken at the heavenly boardroom with characters around and God saying, Comfort these people, speak to the heart of Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Now, whether or not you can buy into the culture, whether or not you can buy into the heavenly boardroom, that the scene that's being laid out here, understand the deep rooted theology of this passage. In the midst of no comfort, God provides comfort. In the midst of silence, God shows up and speaks. In the midst of hurt and pain and suffering, God begins to restore, to mend hearts, to bring people back to an understanding that he is in control. And this is God speaking, enough is enough. Go and give them comfort and go and tell them that their sin has been paid for. Go and tell them that they don't have to suffer any longer. Now, as the text continues, a voice of one calling, it says, and in your text, it says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But here you might be able just to understand this, a voice of one calling as another voice at the table where God is saying, comfort, comfort these people. And one pipes up and says, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places is a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is one of the representatives around the table saying, this is what we must do. We must make a super highway for the Lord. This is something that was been prophesied back in Isaiah 35 that when these people would go into exile, that they would remove every obstacle and that they would have a procession from Babylon back home to Jerusalem as a victory march for what God is doing and everyone would see it. They were making a super highway where the mountains would be made low and the rough places be made smooth and they would be able to process from the place of their pain and suffering and they would go back home and everyone would see it the exiles would return. The people on the margins and the outskirts, the people that have been hurt would march back in victory to the place where they came from. And the glory of the Lord would be seen. So in the midst of the silence, God says, go comfort these people. And a voice pipes up and says, we need to make a super highway so that that people can move back from Babylon and go back home. And then God's glory will be seen by everyone because the people who are the lowest of the low will march back home in victory. Another voice at the table perhaps says, cry out. God says, comfort these people. And a voice says, In the wilderness, let's prepare a super highway for this to happen. And then another voice says, cry out. And now the prophet shows up with a voice of doubt, with a voice of concern and says, what am I gonna say? The text continues in this uh, negative sort of way that, that fits in with a lot of this other text throughout Isaiah. Even in 40 through 55, there are these interchanges between God who says, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. I have you engraved on the palm of my hand. And the people as they respond, well, you've been gone. You haven't been here. This is a text that's laden with doubt and pain and suffering. And even the prophet now is playing into that saying, what am I supposed to say? What can I cry out that would mean anything to these people? In fact, all these people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fail because the the breath of the Lord blows on them and surely the people are grass. What's the, the import behind this is there's no faithful commitment of the people. There's nothing that we can do to merit this, to earn this, to be on God's side long enough to have this happen. What am I supposed to say? All we've known, all these people have known is God's judgment and pain and suffering and absence from the land. And now where we don't usually read a different voice, a different voice pipes back in. This is the voice that's saying, cry out, go and proclaim this message of comfort and hope and peace. This same voice says, you know what? You're right, the grass does wither and the flowers do fall and people are fickle and people are not consistent and people are not committed. But you know what doesn't fail? The word of our God, it endures forever. And in this passage, the word of God that is so poignant is a word of comfort and hope. And not only this like feeling of comfort and hope and peace, but the fact that God is speaking it into existence. Go comfort these people that have been lost. Bring them back to their home. Bring them back to the promised land. Let them know that I am still with them in the midst of this 150 years of silence. Go minister to their needs. Show up because my word does not fail. This isn't a passage so much about the Bible and its accuracy or its historical um, reliability. This is a passage about God and his faithfulness right here and right now to comfort these people that he says he is going to comfort. And he's going to do so in an improbable way. Let's make a superhighway and let's march back home, people, because I've got plans for you. This voice continues, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. The one that you thought had abandoned you, the one that you thought had left you off for dead, the one that you thought doesn't speak anymore, this is him and here we are. And go and shout this good news on the mountaintops, this, this, uh, this massive restoration that God is bringing about right here and right now. Don't be ashamed to tell the people in your life what's going on. See the Lord, he comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. He, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies with him. God is strong. God is a warrior in this passage, but then the metaphor shifts. God is powerful and can release you from captivity, but he tends you like a flock. He gathers the lambs in his arm and he carries them close to his heart. I like talking about this because this is interesting to me, but in the Old Testament, one of the um, metaphors that is used for forgiveness more often than anything else is God carrying our sins. And here in this passage, we see God carrying his people and bringing them back to the place that he has promised to them and allowing them to feel perhaps for the first time in a long time that they are cared for, that they are loved. And this might not be the best reading of the text, but some of you guys, you need that. You need to be reminded that God is not only a strong warrior who can take care of his business, but God is also a shepherd who carries you close to his chest, who has not forgotten you, who has not left you off to the margins and the outskirts, but cares for you and the people around you, if we are able to shout, here is your God, that's a message that we should be sharing. This all is bad news for the empire. The people that are in charge, the Babylonians who have all the cool weapons and all the cool stuff and the huge armies, when they hear this word that God is going to bring his people back, this is bad news for them, but this is good news for the exiles. This is good news for the people who have been displaced. This is good news for people that don't have a home. This is good news for people that no longer have the religious symbols that have made their lives significant up to this point. This is good news for the people that thought that God was silent. And now with this background in Isaiah chapter 40, some of the questionable stuff about the the table and the people around it. All we can hear is God is sending a message of comfort to this people in the midst of the silence and in the midst of the brokenness, about to do a good and new work to bring them back, to march them back home in power and victory, to reclaim, in a sense, his relationship with them. And this is the image that the gospel authors use to describe the work of John the Baptist. Now it says in the book of Mark it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the wilderness It's interesting how in the Old Testament text the the way that it's translated is usually a voice calling out comma quotes in the wilderness but here in the New Testament they're bringing all this together a voice of one calling in the wilderness comma quotes, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This was John's message. This was John's um, work that he had to do was to prepare this way. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Side note, I grew up in a home that was somewhat strange around the holiday of Halloween and I dressed up like John the Baptist one year and I had like a toga of fur and a belt. (laughs) Mom does not believe that that happened, but I know it. We just can't find the pictures. And this was John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what we have in the wilderness with this crazy guy with the fur toga and a leather belt, he's preparing another super highway where the people who are pledging their allegiance now to, to go in a different direction to follow God and now to follow God through the acts of Jesus, they would march back victorious. Every hill would be made low and every rough place would be made smooth so that they could walk back and that the glory of God could be seen and demonstrated again in a surprising way. In the Old Testament, it's through the reclamation of uh, an Old Testament people brought out of exile to march back home. And in the New Testament, it's through Jesus and through his work in healing and teaching and loving to the point of death, to say no to the empire. And we see this victory march that leads him all the way back to Jerusalem, the place where they're supposed to go in the Old Testament, but where Jesus is leading these people as we see him going up to the gates. He knows that they don't really quite know what they're signing up for. This whole idea of taking up your cross and following Jesus is a march in a sense to your own death. It entails suffering. It entails hurt. It entails pain because when we align with Jesus, we focus on the people on the margins and the outskirts and the people that have been broken and hurt. And I'm not talking about forsaking the people in the comfortable middle here. I mean, we see the people who need Christ and we make that our aim and we make that our hope and we prepare a super highway for them to march back home, to feel God's presence and to be restored by God. And in the New Testament here, we see the proclamation of not just good news, but better news. Jesus as the one who has procured for us life and hope. And it isn't just culminated in heaven, when we die, it begins here and it begins now. Throughout this text in Isaiah and understanding the culture and understanding the world that's, that's going on here, God's speaking comfort in the midst of silence. Through Jesus, we are also able to speak comfort and hope into the, the midst of some of your lives which are characterized by silence, where you think God is no longer involved, that God has left you for dead but the good news, the better news of Jesus is that that is not true. That there is a plan and a hope for you that is symbolized in following Jesus to be about the work that he is about, to care for those people that you see around you and to understand that God wants you to be restored to wholeness, that God wants you to experience comfort and peace and hope here and now. So this isn't a great Christmas text, but what we see in this passage is a hope that as we look back to the infant baby Jesus who showed up into this world of brokenness and hurt and pain to become one of us, to identify with us, and ultimately to put sin and death to death, we also get to anticipate his glorious return and our participation in that and how that is symbolized with this walk on the superhighway that proclaims, here is our God. My hope this evening is that we would be able to make that march and to proclaim those words of old, here is our God. Join in this victory procession that is united around the death and resurrection of Jesus.
0: Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at RestoreSBY.org. See you next week.